0: Good morning. It's a great joy to be with you. Um, I heard someone say recently, uh, "All of history is a footnote to that promise that Jesus made in Matthew 16: I will build my church." I think that's pretty cool to think about. How that's what He's doing in all the world, <clears throat> and He will do it. That's my joy this morning to uh, share God's Word with you, um, man. Thank you guys so much for your prayers for our family over the last few years. Just. Uh, number of people have come up to me today and, and told us how much you've been praying for us and um, how you remember us. And uh, I'm just incredibly humbled and grateful for that. Um, we are sustained by the prayers of God's people around the world. And, um, and uh, we're just so grateful. So thank you so much. Thank you for your constant support and faithful prayers for us. And, and really for all your missionaries that you guys have sent out all over the world. Um, I'm really, really grateful for that. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, this morning's teaching is going to be from Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, please do turn there. I'll be reading uh, chapter 5, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 14. So if you would, would you please stand, if you're willing and able, as we give deference to God's Word? Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, To our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, this is your word. And just as the rains never fall to the earth and return to heaven without having accomplished their purposes, we know also that your word would never leave without returning to you, having accomplished its purpose. And so we do ask right now that the purpose of your word would be accomplished in our lives, in our hearts, in this church. May we see Jesus in his glory and beauty. May we live lives that reflect Christ to our neighbors and to the nations. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last month... Maybe you're watching this, Uh, I was watching it too, well I guess in August, not last month, but as Kabul was falling to the Taliban as uh, American troops were leaving and the Allied troops were leaving um, Afghanistan and just the chaos and the desperation of so many people, uh, the images of them trying to climb onto the airplanes, trying to escape a city, uh, a nation of people uh, living in fear of what would come with the despotic and evil rule of the Taliban that was rising up. <clears throat> for Christians, the story is even darker and even scarier in Afghanistan. One pastor noted that he got a, a, a note from a Taliban leader that said, we know who you are, we know what you do, and we're coming for you. And since then, we've heard stories of the, the church in Afghanistan going into hiding, people being martyred, people being sought out, young, young girls being taken for wives of the Taliban army, the amount of fear and struggle in the Afghanistan church, which is a small church, very few Christians in the country of Afghanistan, but yet, from what I hear, growing at an incredible rate. Afghanistan is only second to North Korea as the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. And so you see stories like this, stories of, of what's happening right now to the church, the fledgling church in Afghanistan. And I cry out, Lord, why? What are you doing? How are you going to establish the witness of Christ among these people in the face of such evil? In the face of such horrible rule and, and a regime like the Taliban, what are you doing? How are you going to do it? As if it wasn't hard enough. Add this, this oppressive government. How will the mission of God succeed with such evil? How will this fledgling church thrive in the face of this? And I find Revelation 5, I find the book of Revelation, in fact, a real comforting and help in times like this for us. Because the book of Revelation is is written by the Apostle John, the author, and at the time of his writing this, he's in chains, he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. John is the last living apostle of Jesus, he's seen all his friends killed martyred for believing in Jesus, taking a stand for the witness of Christ and his resurrection, and they've been killed for it. And he's in chains for it. And what he's doing in the book of Revelation is he's writing a letter to the fledgling church in Asia Minor, the the churches that are also under the foot of an oppressive government, that are suffering for their witness to Christ. And you see this in chapter three and four, I'm sorry, two and three of Revelation, where he's, he's talking to these churches. Jesus is talking to these churches and he's saying, I see you. I see what you're going through. I'm near to you. I'm identifying with you in your struggle and in your persecution. And Revelation is giving them hope, it's giving them a vision. See, what John does in this, in this chapter, in chapter four and chapter five, is this, is this heavenly throne room scene. And what John is doing in this is, is, is he's pulling back the curtain, the, the veil that, that we in the flesh cannot see because of our eyes, and showing us a greater spiritual reality of what really is happening in the world. Something that's clouded by persecution and evil and, 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 and the material culture around us and, and our, our own sin and wickedness. It's clouded by those things. And John is pulling back this veil with eyes of faith and, and, and he's escorted. You know, john uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 4.1, he's escorted into this throne room and he sees the control center of the universe where God is on the throne and he shows us that what is, begins in tears in chapter five ends in worship. That all of history is on this trajectory toward the worship of God in Christ. All of creation, all of humanity bows and worships at the end of chapter five. And he's giving this fledgling church in Asia Minor this vision and encouraging them and saying, this is, this is what you're a part of. This is what you signed up for. Though you may not see it now, this is where it's headed. And this is the encouragement for us today as well. As we, some of us watch from afar, some of us participate, some of us go, some of us facing it in our own lives, in our own families, the struggles to see it, the struggles to believe it, the struggle to apply it. So let's look at this chapter together see how it all unfolds four things I really want to I have four points but the four application from each of these points I'm going to give them to you right up front as we work through this passage is that this causes this calls us to trust God deeply it calls us to pray pray cry out to God in prayer and to break for the nations of the world but it also calls us to sacrifice and to give and to go and it calls us to do all this with great joy so let's look at this together. First, first thing I want us to see is that the sovereignty of God directs all of history and calls us to trust Him deeply. So look at me with verse, at verse 1 of chapter 5. And what I want to call your attention to is this verse that, then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. That throne is significant. It is significant throughout Scripture, the Psalms, the book of Daniel. It's an Old Testament meaning. It's packed with significance. And what John means to convey when he says that he's, he's in the throne room of God and that God is on the throne, what he, what he means to convey is to assure the church and to assure each one of us sitting here today that God, our Father, is under complete control over all of earth's affairs. That He is loving, that He is gracious, and that He sees the beginning from the end And his hand superintends all that comes to pass. Speaking to a persecuted and a suffering church, John is saying regardless of how rampant the evil is around you, regardless of what you see, regardless of where you sit in your circumstances, you can know, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a loving, gracious, heavenly Father who sees it all, who knows it all, and who is in control of it all. Nothing is outside of God's control. Now, I want you to think about the significance of that reality right now for the persecuted church that John is writing to who's on mission for God. You're going out. You're you're taking a stand against the culture around you. You're taking a stand for Christ against the kingdoms around you, and you're being killed for it. You're being persecuted for it. You're being hunted down. People are writing you notes that say, I know who you are, I know what you do, and I'm coming for you. And think about that that in the face of that type of persecution and that fear, that you can hold on to this this beautiful doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that He is in control, that He knows what's happening. Friends, God doesn't have a plan B for history he has a plan a and whatever comes to pass whether it's in your life or in the the life of the afghanistan church the china church the north korean church the indian church whatever it may be there is one plan and god is bringing it to pass and you can rest assured that he will build his church and the kingdom of hell will not prevail against it he is doing these things there is no detour this is His plan. That's what the throne signifies. That's what it means for us. Recently, Maggie and I, my wife, had the opportunity to attend a time of prayer for the Chinese church. And there were supposed to be, um, you know, the Chinese church has been, has been persecuted uh, rampantly the last few years. You've probably heard about it, you've read about it, you've seen... Uh, Pastors and elders who are in prison, children and students being taken to re education camps and re education schools. And at this particular time that Maggie and I were participating in this prayer meeting with uh, with a number of of Chinese leaders and pastors. we had recently been kicked out of India. We were blacklisted and deported out of India. That's how we left our ministry. Long story, I won't go into it, but, but we, were, we were really suffering. We were really struggling emotionally, uh, spiritually, wrestling with God over these, these uh, you know, dark shadows uh, of providence in our lives and, and, and questioning what He was up to. And I remember sitting in this prayer meeting with this one particular uh, Chinese pastor and, he, and he, shared how, he was sharing how we can be praying for the Chinese church. And he said something that, that absolutely struck me. He said, don't pray that God takes away our suffering. Pray that we're faithful through it and that he uses it to refine us. He said, don't pray that God takes away our suffering. Pray that we are faithful through it and that he refines us by it. And I I was just crying at that point and saying, Maggie, what a weak person I am. Here I am just, not that you shouldn't pray for suffering, not that you shouldn't pray that God takes it away, but the perspective, the throne room perspective of that man, that God is using, in fact, the suffering and the brokenness of this world to do something powerful, to do a beautiful work through it, that he's in complete control of it all, Friends, do you have that perspective? Do you have that throne room perspective on whatever it is you're going through, on whatever it is you're facing? Do you have that perspective that God is going to use it, that he is going to do something beautiful in it? Well, John goes on to say that there's something else, that that God is on the throne, yes, but he also has a scroll in his hand. And this is the second thing that I want us to see that the plan of God is the salvation of his people from sin and death, and it directs us to pray with spirit-filled confidence. This is our second point. Now, what John sees in the hand of him who sits on the throne is this scroll. It's filled with writing on the front and on the back. That means it's complete. That means it's perfect. Uh, Revelation is, is, is uh, is a book of meaning and symbols, right? And in, in the book of Revelation, whenever you get things like a scroll or a throne or uh, a bunch of other language that we'll look at in a minute, you have to understand it's pregnant. It's, 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 it's hyperlinked text. It's, you click it and it goes back to an Old Testament referent, right? It's, it's filled with meaning and symbolism. And so these, these, uh, these New Testament Christians who are, are reading this, this letter from John, they, they, they have context for this that we might not have. And so they see language like seven, you know, eyes and seven horns, and, 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 and they, they, have, they have, there's meaning to it. There's explanation. We're not going to be able to get in everything, but, but they, 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 have a, they have context for that that we might not have. And so this scroll that, that John has, he, he, he pulls it out, uh, the God, God holds it in his hand, and the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then we get to verse three, and it says, no one. In heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John begins to weep loudly. I begin to weep loudly. That word is emphasized. He's, he's not just tearing up. He's choking up. I began to weep wow, loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So what's so significant about the scroll that it would cause John to weep? See friends, the scroll contains the ultimate purposes of god in all of the world it's his purposes to establish his rule and his reign one of the commentaries i read said it's it's the judgments of god over the world it's how god brings about his rule and his reign and establishes his kingdom forever it's his redemptive plan it's his mission it's how he judges sin and deals with evil in the world, but it's how he brings, shows his mercy and establishes his church through his son. It's, it's his plan for all of redemption. And so John is weeping when he sees that there's nobody who is worthy to make sense of it. There's nobody who's worthy to understand what's in scroll, who's who's able to unlock its meaning and significance for all of history. That's why he's weeping. That's why he's on the ground crying because there is no one worthy. The deafening silence in heaven is testimony to the depravity of our humanity that we are under sin. We are under the judgments contained in the scroll. We don't deserve the life and the promise of, the, of, of covenant faithfulness promised in the scroll. We deserve the curses of the scroll because of our sin. And therefore, we're, we're unworthy so John is broken on the floor, a broken man crying at the lostness of souls who remain under the curses of the scroll. See friends, unless there is someone worthy, hopelessness is all that remains in history. There is no meaning to what's happening in Afghanistan. There is no meaning to tsunamis that kill 300,000 people in a the morning. There is no meaning to earthquakes that level cities. There is no meaning to your pain, and my pain, whatever it is you're going through. Unless there's someone worthy to help us understand this. Do you know that there are more people in the world today without Jesus than there ever were in history? To illustrate this, in 1900, 121 years ago, there were about 1 billion non Christians in the world. Today that number is 5 billion. 5 billion people stand under the imminent judgment of God and will be lost. To an eternity in hell, apart from God. Of that number, three billion have some knowledge of Christ, but two billion souls remain who will be born, live, and die and never meet a Christian or hear the gospel in their language, contextualized in their communities. Think about that for a minute. That's a crisis. That's serious, that's why John is weeping. Why don't we weep for this? Why aren't we broken hearted for this reality? This should move us to tears, friends. This should cause us to cry out to God for mercy, for Jesus to come. Did you know that today, there are as many as 46 million people in the world who are trapped in slavery, some form of slavery? About 46 million, about half of them are in India. There are more slaves today in the world than ever before. Why don't we weep for these things? The brokenness of the world around us, your sin, my sin, just the evil that we can see. Friends, let this lead us to pray. John cries out in this passage, he cries out Would somebody be worthy? And let us cry out in prayer to God. This should cause us to pray. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for the unreached people groups of the world. Get one of the, Go on the website joshuaproject.net. They have a great prayer resource. They can give you daily updates about people groups around the world that remain unreached, that, remain, that don't have a gospel witness among them. Pray for them. Pray for your missionaries. Adopt a missionary family to pray for. Pray because God, we know that God uses prayer to answer the call, that God uses prayer to send people into the mission field, that God uses prayer to establish his kingdom around them. We know that. So please continue to pray for the work of Christ around the world. But let's look at the next point in the face of the brokenness, in the face of the unworthiness of humanity to open the scroll. What does God do? What does God do to establish his Plan of redemption. And this is our third point. The slain Lamb of God wins the victory. He wins the victory and calls his people to follow him in laying down our lives for others. So as John is weeping on the floor, throne room of God, one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Weep no more. John, you can stop crying. Why? Behold, he says, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's he talking about? The book of Revelation, again, hyperlinked text. This is significant. This this has a lot of meaning for for the early church Christians. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference to Genesis 49. If you remember in Genesis, Jacob is... Promising his kids different promises. He's blessing his kids, the tribes. And he says to Judah that there will be a lion, a powerful and mighty king that would come from you and that he would, he would be your descendant and he will be king and he will rule. So they, they would hear this, 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 this image of this. John would, John's readers would hear this and see this, this promise being fulfilled. The other thing is the root of David what she mentions here. And that's another prophecy from Isaiah <clears throat> that, that one from the, the, the tribe of David, from the people of David, the a, a messianic hope of God's people would be raised up. Deliver them from evil. Deliver them from their oppressors and their enemies. Give them hope and freedom, joy. So there, are Israel's waiting on a redeemer. They're waiting on someone to vindicate them, to ve- defeat their enemies. And what John is, what the angel is saying to John is here he is. He's saying, Here is that promised Messiah, the lion that was promised in Genesis 49, the root of David. He's come and he's conquered. He's worthy because he's conquered. He's worthy to take the scroll because he's conquered. Would you notice? He has conquered, not future tense, past tense. He has conquered, he has died the death that everybody deserves to die under the scroll, and he's risen to victorious life. And he's ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and he's taken the scroll because he's worthy to take it because of what he's done on the cross and overcoming death in our enemies. He has conquered. Incredibly significant, friends. Jesus has won the victory over evil and death. You don't win victories over evil and death. Jesus does, we live out of that victory that he has accomplished for us. And he is at the center of all of history, making sense of all of history. That's what's going on in this passage. The throne room of the universe, the control center of all of history, there is Jesus victorious. Now, this is really important. Look what happens next in your text. John hears from the elder, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, But then he turns and what does he see? Verse six, I look and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And friends, this is one of the most baffling realities of the Bible that speaks to the means by which God accomplishes his purposes of redemption in the world. Notice this, the the, the conquering lion, the champion of God's people, the Messiah that was promised doesn't come as a roaring, conquering lion, but as a slaughtered lamb, a bloodied lamb. Before the throne room of God in the center of the universe, the place from where God controls and directs all of history towards his desired end, right there at the center of it all is a slaughtered lamb. What does this say, friends? What does this say for us? Again, First, let's look at what the Jews are reading into this and how they're understanding it. They would hear about this slaughtered lamb and they'd immediately think of the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover lamb from Exodus? That blood was spilled in order to to mitigate, in order to prevent the angel of death from cursing God's people, the firstborn of God's people. Blood was spilled by a lamb. It was put over the doorposts of God's people in order to protect God's people from God's judgments toward their sin and guilt. But they would also have heard Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each and every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. Friends, how did the lion conquer? By becoming a lamb, by becoming weak, by becoming vulnerable, by sacrificing himself for all his enemies. How is this victory? How is that victorious? And, friends, this is the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Because God takes sin and evil so seriously that he steps into history himself. He steps into evil and injustice. And he jumps into the fray and he absorbs all of it onto himself. And he defeats the curse by becoming a curse himself so that we can be freed from the curse. And therefore, he is worthy to lead his people in triumphal procession. Again, not away from suffering and pain necessarily, not away from death, but even through death into eternal life on the other side. He is worthy to do that. And and, and Revelation 5 shows us this, that suffering and pain is at the center of reality because the bloodied lamb is at the center of reality at the throne. You see that? It is at the center of reality. And that's why Jesus can take the scroll. That's why he can do it because of his life, death, and resurrection. He reigns over all of history and he offers us significance, hope, joy, confidence, perspective, and true victory to all who are in him. And friends, make no mistake about it. We are not above Jesus. If he carries the cross, so must we. In the cruciform life, has always been, and will always be the means by which the mission is accomplished. God is calling you in Christ as a church to give, to go, to serve, to lay down your lives on mission for Him. We are called to give. It's going to cost you something. Your church is doing faith promise right now. It's going to cost you something. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be something that you just give out of excess towards. God's mission is costly. We, we, we follow Christ in laying down our lives for our wives, our husbands, our kids, our neighbors, the Afghan people, the Chinese people, the Japanese people. We lay down our lives. We don't demand our rights and fight for them. We give, we give, we give some more. We send our sons and our daughters to preach Christ where he is not named. Friends, it it, it is going to cost your church something. It is going to cost me something. But Jesus is worthy, isn't he? He is worthy. He has paid the ultimate price. He has paid it all. We get to give and go and lay down our lives like him. But look what happens next in heaven in this vision. This is our last point. The people of God celebrate his victory within, with joy and serve him with joy. This is a powerful and beautiful thing that happens in all, of, in all of heaven in this scene. This is so important for us to remember, friends. The glory of God is the goal of all of history. Nothing else, nothing less. The glory of God is the goal of all of history and all of everything look what happens in heaven next. All of creation, when they see John, who sees the lion that becomes the lamb, what is it that, they all erupt in worship. What is it that fuels this passion for mission? It's worship. It's worship. It's the goal of everything is worship. John Piper famously said, missions exists because worship doesn't. The joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Look at what happens in verse eight. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all fall down before the lamb. They begin to sing. What is it they sing? They sing this new song about the slaughtered lamb. Does the living creatures, the 24 elders, they realize that at the center of heaven, at the center of everything, is this bloodied lamb, the sacrifice of the only son of God who gave up his life for us. He's at the center of it all. And so they're singing and they're, they're worshiping him. Don't you see that that's at the center of history? And then And then... Then what, then what happens? Then, then they see, they, they're singing, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its, its seals. You are worthy because you were slain. With your blood, you ransomed people for God. Another really significant line here, not just Israel, not just those people there, but all peoples, it says, people from every tribe, language, people, nation. See, the scope of the work of what God is doing in the world is universal. It goes, it goes to every ethnic group, North Koreans, Afghans, the Japanese, the 2,500 different ethnic groups in India. And it says, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests. That's who we are. That's who you are, a kingdom of priests. You are interceding for the nations. You are witnessing to the nations and your neighbors and the kids the mercies of God in Christ Christ. This is our mission. One theologian said Christians are implementing the victory of Christ throughout the world. That's what we do as the church, implement the victory of Christ throughout the world. But the worship doesn't stop there, it goes viral. Look at verse 11, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. There's a holy roar in heaven. They're singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. Friends, God doesn't just deserve the, the, the worship of a few, but of all of creation, and that's what happens next. It doesn't even stop there. Verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There's a, a cosmic uproar, worshiping Jesus for all eternity, it says. And then verse 14, everybody says amen. Amen. All of history ends in worship. There's nothing left to say we fall down and say amen because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's how history ends. That's where it's headed. That's the mission. That's what we're a part of. That's what you signed up for when you became a Christian, to be a part of the the universal worship of God in Christ for all eternity and the, the, the spread of his kingdom over the entirety of the earth as the water covers the sea. This is what's happening, friends, in the world today. It's not just something off in the future. This is happening today. Did you know that this morning, as many, if not more, people in China worshiped Jesus than in this country? Did you know that? Did you know that this is happening now? Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me end with this quick story. When the Nazis closed down all the evangelical seminaries in Germany in 1937, a Lutheran theologian and pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, top on their hit list. In those days, evangelical Christians were, uh, they had a very short lifespan. Uh, Imprisonment, death, um, they opposed the, the Nazi party. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a leader among them. And during that time, he formed together a group of brothers, pastors, uh, that, that, that loved each other, that shared a common purpose and mission, uh, but they couldn't be together because of the, the despotic rule of the Gestapo. And so he had to communicate with them with letters. And even from when he was in prison, he would write these letters. They were carbon-copied so that he could distribute them throughout. You know, this was before email, and, uh, but they, he would carbon-copy these letters and he'd send them out. And, and those letters were actually the foundation or the, the beginning of a, a well-known book that Dietrich wrote on on, uh, on um, community, Christian community, called Life Together. Great little book on Christian community. But anyway, that, that community was the impetus for him to write that book. But anyway... Um, the last letter before he before he was killed, before he was hung um, and and put uh, for for his crimes against uh, the Nazi government, Dietrich was writing a letter to these to these brothers, his dispersed friends who are in fear, living uh, you know waiting for that knock on the door, waiting to be caught, uh, and he's and he's calling them to something powerful. And what would you, what would you say he would call them to? What do you think he's writing to them to do? And this is really interesting. I want, you, I want to read you this short por- portion of his, of his letter to, his, to these brothers before he dies. He says this, joy abides with God and it comes down from God and it embraces spirit, soul, and body. And where this joy has seized a person, there it spreads and there it carries one away. There it bursts open closed doors because the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. And that is why it is an invincible, irrefutable joy. Full of joy, we are enabled to believe that there was and is one to whom no human suffering or sin is foreign, and who, in deepest love, accomplished our redemption. Only in such joy in Christ the Redeemer shall we be preserved from hardening our hearts where human suffering encounters us. See, friends, Dietrich's last words to his friends, John's last words. To the church of Asia Minor before his death is to compel us to sing for joy. Not fight for our rights, not complain about the oppressive government, but to dig our roots deep down into Christ, deep into his love for us, and join with this heavenly chorus of all of creation. And only from there to draw upon the gushing springs of what he calls invincible, irrefutable joy. Wouldn't that be our prayer today? Wouldn't that be our prayer? Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that God is doing in Afghanistan, that they would know this joy. Whatever he's doing in the church in China, that they would know this joy that comes from this lamb who laid down his life for them and gave them new life that they would know this joy that they would dig their roots deep down into this into this person of Christ and have this joy. And John's story here in chapter 5 begins with tears and it ends with this eruption of praise and worship to God. What changed? It wasn't his circumstances. It was his perspective on what God is doing in the world. That God has a grander design and a more beautiful perspective than he could ever imagine. Friends, this is what's happening in the world now. All of creation is moving toward the worship of God in Christ. All of it. He is the ultimate treasure of our hearts. And we have the joy as his blood-bought people to participate by prayer, by giving, by going in the worship of the Lamb throughout all of creation among all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations because he is worthy. Do you believe it? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful picture of what you're doing in the world. May our eyes see with faith. May our hearts be tuned to this, the work of your spirit in our own community, in our lives, in our families, and in the world. Give us eyes to see Soften our hearts, humble us, make us your servants, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.